Hello, I'm Moira Fay, and welcome to the Dublin Business Collective sponsored by SSE Airtricity. The podcast where we get together and jump into the minds of some of Ireland's most famous and inspirational business owners, founders and entrepreneurs. So today I am excited to be sitting with award-winning innovator and business leader John Tui of Upod. John is no stranger to entrepreneurship, a very well-known and extremely well-respected voice in the Irish business community who knows how to reach his customer. There is much to be learned from John's extensive experience, over 30 years of experience to be precise. John is the founder and CEO of Upod Self-Service Smart Lockers, but this was far from his first rodeo in delivery solutions. John was also co-founder and CEO of the enormously successful Nightline Parcel Motel Group, which was acquired by UPS in 2017. I think it would be hard to find someone in Irish business more qualified to speak authentically on the entrepreneurial experience than John. So let's get into it. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining me on the Dublin Business Collective. Thanks for having me, Maureen. Why don't we go back to the start? I think it's a good place to start as any. Can I ask you to take us back to the beginning as into, I think it was 1992, and I believe a spare bedroom, uh, to the beginning of Nightline? Yeah, so in my in my early career, I I progressed into senior management quite young. Um, but when I was about twenty or twenty one, I was the country manager for a multinational parcel delivery service here in Ireland, and I left that in ninety two to found Nightline myself and Dave Field, who was the co founder. And initially, uh, we just started with two little vans and a one mobile phone because mobile phones were very expensive in those days, so we could only afford one. And uh, we started an international courier service running it from uh, the spare bedroom my house. That was on the, the, st- the day we started our business was the 3rd of May, 1992. And then fast forward 25 years to the 3rd of May, 2017. And we were late at night in the, the law, in the offices of a big law firm downtown signing the contract to sell the business to UPS. So it was exactly 25 years to the day wow. later that we sold it. And at that point, We'd built the business up to about around 65 million in turnover and we had about over 1,200 people working in the business at that stage. And it was it was a diversified logistics business. So it was everything from freight forwarding, parcel delivery, mail and parcel motel, which was, was really successful and very popular with, with customers and probably the, the brand that most people would be familiar with. Can I ask, on the, the, the UPS acquisition, how did that come about? And um, being such a large and significant entity that you were, was it a straightforward decision? It wasn't a straightforward decision. We were initially approached by another multinational to buy the business. And then we went to EY for a corporate finance advice. And they said, look, if one multinational is interested in buying this business, others might be interested too. Why don't we run a process? So it's a bit like, I suppose, putting your house on the market and getting an estate agent in to to market it for you. So EY ran a process for us and true to what they said, a number of multinationals emerged as interested buyers. Eventually it boiled down to two and and eventually then it became UPS as the, the sort of the, the, the preferred acquirer, if you like. Now, at the time, if you think about it, we sold a business in 2017, but the process was probably running for about a year and a half before that in terms of running the process, 
whittling down the field, then, you know, going through various the various stages of selling the business. So if you think about it, in 2016, in the middle of all that, Brexit, the Brexit vote had happened. There was a lot of uncertainty in the market in terms of whether or not the UK was going to be inside or outside the customs union with the EU and so on. So there was a lot of uncertainty. There were a lot of options that were open at the time in terms of whether or not we were going to have to invest in customs clearance facilities because a lot of our business, our parcel business came, originated in the UK. So look, we were heavily indebted as a business because we'd we had not raised any external finance from the time we started in 92 to the time to build and up the business to, you know, to, to, to be a fairly big yeah. corporate entity. Uh, but we had borrowed a lot of money along the way. So we were heavily indebted, heavily leveraged, highly leveraged, I suppose. And then this time of uncertainty, say, that started in 2016 with the Brexit vote in June 2016, where we knew that there was going to have to be a you know, we, we're going to need deep pockets in terms of having to spend money on preparing the business for the various Brexit eventualities that were in front of us. And so we knew that the business would need either a a private equity partner or a trade sale with uh, with a trade owner with deep pockets to, to take it through that period. Yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't a, certainly a slam dunk. Um, we had to really, we thought about it long and hard. And I think in the end, uh, we the decision we made was the right one because, yeah, UPS, who acquired the business, obviously had the financial clout and the the know-how to bring the, take the business through that period of uncertainty. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, thinking of when, when you reflect back on the whole Brexit uncertainty, it seems like a, a smart future. Well, if you think about it, I mean, some of the major retailers in the UK, including, say, Debenhams, who are no longer... But they were a big, would have been a big client of ours. And they're, so anybody ordering online from, from Debenhams in Ireland, the, the parcels, say the orders, just to sort of illustrate it for your listeners, is that the parcels, say, from Debenhams would have originated in a in a warehouse in the UK, brought to Ireland and distributed from there. And all of that was very easy when the U- UK, we were all in the same customs union. Yeah. There was no customs formalities, nothing like that. Whereas now anything that originates in the UK ordered online has to go through a customs clearance process. Okay. There's paperwork, there's process, there's all of that to do. And uh, all of that, the systems that that needed to be put in place uh, was required significant investment t- to handle all that. Yeah. Now, a, multi, a multinational cross-border expert like UPS were already in that space. If you think about it, they would have had parcels yeah. coming to Ireland from, you know, from China and America and everywhere else, you know, places outside of the European Union. So they would have had that expertise already in place to handle those types of transactions, albeit that they would have had to scale up significantly to handle uh, okay. that the, the level of business. Uh, for, you know, because it would have been, there's a lot of trade, obviously, between UK and Ireland. But it, from, from their point of view, they would have had the expertise and just had to kind of scale up to put, that, to put those processes in place. Okay. So May 2017 comes, the contracts are signed, then what? Was your plan to take a break or were you already thinking about the next big idea? Yeah, unusually um, in a in a buyout situation, mo- most companies that, that are sold, the management have to stay in place and there's a, some sort of a, a transition period where the owners or managers have to stay, stay in situ uh, to manage the transition or help manage the transition. And there might even be a sort of an earn out, uh, you know, an earn out situation where part of your consideration for the sale of the business 
yeah. uh, comes later, but not this time because when, when, when UPS buy a business, it's a bit like, I suppose, McDonald's buying John's Burgers. Okay. They have their own, they have their own uh, culture, their own way of doing things. And they had a management team ready to go in terms of, so, so May 2017, what actually happened was they, we signed a contract to sell the business, but then we had to go for a competition authority approval, which took um, about another six weeks. Okay. So there was contract signed, we'd agreed to sell the business, then we had to wait for competition authority approval. I think it's called a CCCP now. And um, so there's a bit of a sort of bit of a hiatus while we waited for that approval to come through. Yeah. And then when that came through about six weeks later, which is around, I suppose, July 2017, then effectively myself and Dave left the business and UPS had their, their own people, their own management team ready to go. So after that, um, yeah, I had planned to take a year out, which which I did, and we had 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 a nice time. I, we did some myself, my family, and all. We had some nice holidays and so on over the next year. But after that, then I need to start thinking about um, getting back into business and and uh, my what, what what I was going to do next. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's that's what happened. So a year out, the year out was great. We had a nice time. As I as I've said before, after I sold the business. I went home and uh, found these people living in my house and it, it turned out it was my wife and children. <laughs> and uh, it was great getting to know them again. Yeah. And uh, my kids were just in their um, early to mid-teens at the time. So it was great being able to spend, having yeah. some time off because up to that, uh, it was years of uh, working long days and been away from home a lot. And uh, for example, a good portion of our business um, over the years would have originated in the UK. So I would have spent at least a week a month in the UK either dealing, talking to new new clients or okay. new prospects or or working, you know, just uh, managing existing client relationships. Mm-hmm. So we would have had a lot, of, I would have had a lot of travel, I would have been away from home a lot and I would have been working long hours. So it's great to have a year of just spending time. Yeah. Um, some well-deserved holidays. <laughs> Absolutely. And we had a few nice holidays and spent some time there. So, um, so yeah, I had that, and then then after that, once that went by, twenty seventeen to twenty eighteen, then sort of into twenty nineteen, then I started mm. to think about what I was going to do next. You know, and was the was the idea for Upod always there, or was it something that evolved? Yeah, well, I suppose Parcel Motel was hugely successful, and about ten percent of the population of Ireland actually had had a Parcel Motel account. We'd over when I left in twenty seventeen, we had five hundred thirty thousand Parcel Motel user accounts. Yeah. So it was quite an exposure to the consumer population. I was re- and I was really excited about it because it was the first time that I was ever really involved in a direct consumer business. And it, it was so interesting at the time because up to that, all of our business offering was kind of B2B yeah. and uh, we had no real direct relationship with consumers and and thinking about how, how customers, you know, cust- you know, direct consumer I, I don't like using that word consumer, but direct cons- customer sort of yeah. relationships and that kind of stuff. But so uh, I suppose there was a number of ideas that myself and Orla, who or- Orla Shields, who was my my PA in Nightline for about 10 years. And then when we started Paris Motel, it was like a little incubator business that we were running from my for initially just from my office. And uh, she was so heavily involved in it when it became and it started to grow rapidly. She became the sort of the managing director of the Parson Motel division, if you like. Yeah. So we had a number of ideas and other things that we wanted to do with Paris Motel that we kind of kept on the back burner. And then when the time was right, she came to join me in Upod. When I founded Upod in February 22, 
uh, she came on board as the COO. So we're executing some of the ideas we would have had back in the day for Paris Motel okay. and stuff that I would have had on the back burner. Now, I'd have to say, I wasn't really planning on doing another startup and I've, I'd actually forgotten how difficult it was. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and, and being a, I suppose being a second time founder, um, that in, that helps a lot with investor discussions and so on cause, okay. because uh, people know that I'm not just uh, as somebody with a, you know, with, a, with a crazy idea, albeit sometimes they do think I'm crazy. But uh, having said that, I, I spent a bit of time looking at the possibility of buying another business or getting back into the logistics business somehow by maybe buying something, an existing business and maybe partnering with a private equity fund to do that. And uh, I went up and down the mountain a few times looking at deals, particularly in the UK, and just for one reason or another, they fell down either on due diligence or suitability and so on. Yeah. So I was about a, about a year, I spent about a year looking at those kind of deals. And then when I realised that I was spending time um, professional fees and all the rest of it and effort on looking at potential companies to acquire. And that didn't work out. So I just said, look, uh, had been in between things, had been coming backwards and forwards, the parcel locker idea again. I could see the market was really evolving, particularly in the UK and Europe, was really evolving towards uh, parcel locker adoption. Yeah. And uh, so I just thought, look, we might as well give this a go now because I was this the last deal that I had looked at fell down um, around mid-March 2020. COVID was just taking taking hold at that stage and uh, the world was going a bit mad. So I had plenty of time to spend at home and sort of crafting the ideas and, yeah. and, pull, and you know, sort of putting a more finer point on it. Yeah. And that's what brought us to Upod and the launch of Upod where, where we are now. And I imagine, you know, having all that experience with Parcel Motel, it's kind of the the ultimate in customer research as well, this invaluable knowledge base of needs and wants. and Yeah, not only that, but I, I suppose around 2020 and 2019, shall we say, between 2019 and 2021, I did a number of, I did a bit of consultancy work uh, around the world and I, I uh, offered advice and consultancy to other businesses that were launching parcel lockers or had launched parcel lockers and wanted mm -hmm. some help with them. So, that was everywhere from Latin America to the Baltics, and I had done some some uh, project work there. I could see the way the market was thinking, and uh, I could see how parcel lockers and mass production and parcel lockers had become a huge thing in China and Southeast Asia. So yeah, I was really encouraged by all of that, and I could see real interest and investment, yeah, heavy investment going into parcel locker production. Yeah. And that whole final, what we call now final mile and final mile space and final mile tech, because final mile is is the sort of um, overarching umbrella that we call this, we refer to. And yeah. parcel lockers as out of home, OOH, that's where the O comes from, um, form a big part of that. So there's a big movement, Not might be as evident in Ireland, but in Europe certainly there's massive investment going into parcel locker networks and out of home because... Um, big carriers uh, through, through regulation and through the major carriers, parcel carriers wanting to reduce their carbon emissions yeah. and reduce their costs. So there's big investments and interest in this whole space right now. Can I ask, do you personally, in based on your own experience, do you feel that Dublin is a good space, it's a welcoming space for business owners and entrepreneurs? I think Dublin and Ireland generally is a good place to do business and... Um, I think it is a good space. I think the startup scene and the seed uh, funding side of things in, in Ireland needs a bit of attention. And 
there are more expert people in, out there than me to speak about this, but if I've often listened to Sean O'Sullivan speak, uh, Sean, and he's, he's, he's big in the startup early stage space and he has his own venture fund, SOS Ventures. And he would often say, uh, when I've heard him speak publicly, he'd often say, well, you can't have early stage businesses or scale-ups without startups. Okay. So the seed level um, of, uh, the, the seed level of support in Ireland probably needs some attention. And I don't think there's anybody in the professional services, financial professional services would say that EIS is fit for purpose. So I think some attention needs to go to the seed side of things and then the EIS, uh, you know, the EIS side of things uh, in terms of for later stage startups probably needs uh, reform as well. So I think, yeah, as a country, we're doing we're doing really well in terms of we're open. We have uh, so much inward foreign inward investment here. And we have tech companies here and there's expertise and clustering of expertise here. So we should really be able to capitalise on that. But I think the startup space needs attention and I think it needs more incentive in terms from from a tax relief point of view and everything else. Mm-hmm. So I think if we get that right, then I think we could be, I know we have this ambition to become this sort of Silicon Valley of Europe kind of thing. But I've heard the Collisons again speak about this as well, is that the ecosystem in the Valley in, in California, in terms of the startup space, seed funding, all of that kind of stuff is, is way more advanced than what we have here. Okay. But I don't think there's any reason why we shouldn't be able to emulate that, you know? The opportunity is there. There's plenty of opportunities there. Yeah. Lots of clever people in Ireland. Yeah. Lots of clever people now that are working in tech companies who might be looking, staring down the, the barrel of a redundancy or a P45 with a decent payoff. Those guys should be thinking about starting a business and because when you're sitting in a multinational, you, there's always opportunities where you'll think well there's a better way of doing this or there's an opportunity here that this, that this major multinational there's a niche here that these guys haven't aren't interested in in uh, exploring or whatever yeah. so I mean we've, we're at a great point now where people think are worried about a downturn or a recession but to me that's the opportunity for Ireland is that we've got so many experienced so such great qualified people experienced in the tech sector that might be thinking about and have a, an opportunity to say taking a redundancy check yeah. Now's the time to do it and then go and start and get into that startup space. But I think the support they need, especially in the seed area, is uh, it needs to be incentivized in some way because at the moment for seed rounds or people starting businesses now, we're relying on existing entrepreneurs to put hard-earned capital back on the table and for which they get nothing. They get no tax relief. They don't get anything and they're taking a big gamble. So I think that whole area needs to be visited and I think government and possibly the chamber could possibly... Uh, you know, contribute or or make a contribution to that discussion. Absolutely. Talking about how things evolve and you mentioned there just briefly about the carbon emissions piece, I suppose one of the significant ways that the business landscape is evolving is that now environmental and social responsibility is becoming increasingly important and rightly so. How important was that for you to embed into UPOD strategy and also do you have any thoughts on how Irish businesses can integrate more responsible business practices while still remaining competitive and profitable? Yeah, I mean UPOD is very much in that space because uh, in Europe we have we have a couple of things going on. We've got the regulatory environment. So there's uh, there was a European directive passed, actually passed in 2008 so it's all that, it's that long ago. 
It's called, the, it's short name is the CAFE, which is the Clean Air for Europe Directive, uh, which was directing member states to clean up the air, basically, and reduce NOx2 emissions, not just carbon emissions, but NOx2 and to to have cleaner air, particularly in urban environments. So that, that's, a, that's a new EU directive that was passed in 2008. And member states really are only starting now to get to the business end of implementing the, the changes that are required by that. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I, I think there's a statistic, you might be able to check this, but the statistic certainly, uh, I think it's about 1,800 people in Ireland die prematurely every year due to air quality issues. That might be quite shocking for people, but it is, it's there and it's, and it's a statistic, I think, that's quoted by the EPA. So in some countries, so for example, the government of Barcelona have banned free home delivery. Banned really? It. So they've basically said, look, this needs to be something that has to be paid for or we're going to tax it. Okay. So they've shut dark kitchens. In other words, the kitchens that where people, where you can order food and have it delivered very fast and all the rest of it. So that's a direct result of the directives that are handed down by the EU. In France now, if you own a car or a commercial vehicle, you have to submit the vehicle details to the to a government body and you get back a sort of a, an energy rating, which is a bit like the sticker you see on the side of a domestic appliance when you buy it, which gives you the energy rating. And if your car or van doesn't meet green and, it's a, and you're working in a city in France with more than 150,000 people population, uh, you simply cannot drive into the city centre because it has to be, to have the A or the greenest rating, it has to be an electric vehicle with no emissions. So we're already seeing these, um, the regulatory environment coming in the direction of supporting, you know, in cleaning up the air quality and so on in Europe. And then uh, more lately, I think we've got the Green Deal, which is in the EU, which is a more, right. which is a more recent yeah. You know, piece of which is a bit more aspirational, I think, than an actual directive as such. But but at the same time, you can see that the EU is really getting into the business end of cleaning up air quality yeah. first of all, and then reducing carbon emissions is another thing. But then also sustainability from a business practice point of view, generally speak, spreads out from that. You know, yeah. so where does UPod fit into that? Because you see major carriers now, like UPS, for example, who've quite openly and publicly said that they need to consolidate what they call consolidate the final mile. In other words, it's not sustainable either economically or from an environmental point of view to travel with a single parcel to somebody's, to an individual residence. And really what UPS and other carriers are trying to do is is bring those parcels to a consolidation point. And then then really the, cons- the customer or the consumer needs to take the, the carbon responsibility on then to decide how they're going to go and pick up the parcel, whether they're going to walk or whether to combine it with a, with a shopping trip. And that by itself will reduce the will reduce the carbon emissions. So the days of being able to order something very cheap online and have a, a, a diesel van drive up your street to deliver it to your house, and chances are you mightn't be in, I think are coming to an end. So what will happen is, as carriers decide to consolidate the final mile, as we call it, and reduce their carbon emissions in doing so, and also at the same time reduce costs, then it'll change, it'll have to change customer behaviour in terms of um, how we receive um, items ordered online. That's fascinating. I'd be really intrigued to watch that unfold. And and I think as well, the final mile, it, it gives a little bit of control as well to the customer because, I mean, as you said, the more more times we've missed things, I've got text saying things are in the green bin and you're, you're playing hide and seek in your own garden trying to find things. And it's, you know, I, I, I think it's a model that um, 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, in the, I was just reading an article before on the when I was on the dart on the way into town this morning, and I was, I was reading an article that said that porch piracy, as they refer to it in America, in other words, that's theft of parcels that are left outside people's doors, is now um, costing retailers in the, in the US nineteen billion dollars per year. So, wow. the value of goods stolen from outside people's homes or gone missing or damaged because they were left in the rain or whatever is yeah. it now is that 19 billion in the US that's staggering so I'm sure there's a drop down in terms of what that's you know number is in our, in Ireland and mm-hmm. so on but we're seeing um, in Northern Ireland for example where we've rolled out Upod Parcel Locker Network there as well and it continues to roll out at Lidl and Tesco stores uh, we're seeing that a customer that's ordered something where UPS is the delivery company and say Yodel, which is a, one of the domestic delivery companies in the yeah. UK that operates in Northern Ireland. We're seeing just, and it's anecdotal right now because we don't have enough data really to put hard and fast numbers on this, where we we see a customer that's ordered a number of items online and we can see that they wait a couple of days. So if they've ordered two or three things online, the first one gets delivered, they don't rush out to go pick it up. And because the parcel locker they're picking up from is outside a Lidl store, the chances are they might wait until they're going to do their weekly shop. Okay. But we'll also see that they've, they've another courier like uh, Royal Mail or UPS will have delivered another parcel for the same customer. So the customers tend to wait, pick up the two or three items at the same time. And who knows, I, we don't notice, but they, they're probably then also going in the store to do some shopping as well. Mm. So I, I think if carbon responsibility is giving is given to consumers, I think by and large, they'll act responsibly. Whereas right now, arbitrarily, a van will come up your street where you have no real choice in the matter and you mightn't have needed that phone cover that you ordered from China or whatever straight away. You were happy enough to get it in a few days. So fast delivery is not always that important to a consumer. What it, what it, what's important is convenience that they can get it at a time when they actually want to pick it up or when they're ready for it. So we're seeing that already in Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland right now, we're working with some of the major carriers in terms of integration, in terms of them coming on board and integrating so that they have UPOD as an option for their customers. Uh, the only carrier we have fully integrated there is is actually, ironically, is UPS, so where we still have a great <laughs> relationship with those guys. But in Northern Ireland, we have UPS and Yodel. So there's two major carriers integrated. And we can see that customer behaviour is already starting to change, that a customer knows that the parcel's safe in the locker outside the Lidl store. And the customer knows that they're waiting for something else to arrive. And then you'll see a day or so later, they'll go and pick both up at the same time. So it's really great to see that. It's really encouraging because it means that the consumer is taking the responsibility for the carbon in the journey and inherently are reducing it by the fact that if you've waited two or three days to go and collect three items from a parcel locker outside a Lidl store, what you've done there is prevented three possibly diesel van journeys yeah. up your street. So that's that's cleaner air, it's less carbon. It's win-win. And it's, and it's more profitable for the carriers, obviously. Absolutely. When you reflect on the long-term success that you've experienced over the last 30 or so years, I suppose you could say that a company's culture and values often respect the personal values of its founder or its business owner. Could you maybe share one or two of your own core values, how they drive you and how they've shaped your businesses? I think the most important thing for for me and for, for any business that I'd be involved in is, is integrity. So you must be able to live and breathe what you're preaching in terms of your business philosophy 
And I think ter- integrity is, also, is so important. Honesty and integrity to me are two most important planks and of, of any philosophy in business. Now, we can all go and write a nice mission statement and, and hang it up in reception. But at the end of the day, I think integrity and honesty in your business dealings need to be at the core of, of, of any business and, uh, and company. And I think if you're always honest with your customers and your partners, suppliers, um, employees, and act with integrity is in the in the best way that you can. Then I think that's a good way yeah. to to uh, to start your day. Absolutely, and probably one of the reasons that you're in business over thirty years. It's um it's it's brilliant to see. So, look into the future. Where do you see Upad in say five years time? Okay, well I can tell you where we'll be in the next two years anyway. Okay. So 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 we're so we're continuing our rollout in Ireland. So. We've got great location partners already. We in Lidl and Tesco in Ireland. So for your listeners, you'll increasingly see a new pod, probably every Tesco and Lidl store that can accommodate one in Ireland, which brings us to about 500 locations, I think, between the two of those alone. I'm, and I'm talking about, say, the island of Ireland here, right? So we want to get to ultimately get to about a thousand locations in Ireland because we think that's the level of density that would be acceptable in Ireland. Having said that, a thousand locations in Ireland brings us to one parcel locker location per about seven thousand, seven to ten thousand of population, right? So if you take it at the population of the island of Ireland, it's around seven million. So that if you think about it then, we're getting at a thousand locations in Ireland, we're getting to one to seven to ten thousand people. But in other developed markets where parcel lockers are an accepted are already a well-established way of doing business, like the Czech Republic or like Estonia, for example, and which have would you have comparable populations to Ireland? They're already at one parcel locker location per one thousand five hundred people. So the the opportunity to grow, if we compare with other European countries, where consumer behaviour and customers' buying habits are pretty much the same. So there's plenty of scope. But look, at if we got to a thousand locations in Ireland over the next five years, that would be superb. And then we've also we're also looking for international expansion opportunities. So we're looking to the UK, to major cities in the UK, and we're also looking at some other expansion opportunities in other areas of Europe, in the Nordics. And um, then uh, I suppose after that, you know, if we wanted to sort of take the blue sky view, we're looking to North America and uh, other English speaking countries to start off with. Um, so yeah, look for now in the next five years, definitely you'll see way more we hope to be a household name in Ireland the same way that Parson Motel was Mm -hmm. and then uh, also making some inroads into the UK market which is our next nearest neighbour and where you know we'd have very good contacts and relationships there and then looking further afield Um, we had a team over last week just from Canada actually uh, looking at our business model and uh, we've sort of early stage discussions with them about a joint venture in Canada but we don't have as a startup, early stage business, just need to be really careful about spreading ourselves too far and too thin. Yeah. Um, so Ireland, UK for now, somewhere nearby in Europe and possibly then um, have the eye on the North American market as well. So watch this space or watch this locker. <laughs> Ho- hopefully, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a question that I always wrap up with. So entrepreneurial journeys are full of valuable lessons. I think entrepreneurship is, is not something you do I think it's it's something you are, um, and you know, with the experience that you have, what is 
the one piece of advice that you would share with listeners, so maybe someone who has that idea, someone who wants to get started, someone who wants to start their business, maybe even a piece of advice that you wish you had received early in your career, what would what would you say? Well, look, I would say anybody that's listening that's thinking about starting a business, um, I would say get your ideas down on paper, think about the viability, look to the resources that are available to you. There's the local Leo offices, uh, there's tremendous supports in Ireland, even with the, you know, the banks even in Ireland have early stage and startup advice and all the rest of it. So definitely, if you've got this little voice in the back of your head that says, I think I could do this better, I think I've got an idea, it doesn't have to be an invention, by the way. It could be just a business process or service that you think mm. is that is unaddressed and that there's a there's a potential market for it. So I would say start listening to the voice in the little, the voice in the back of your head, start writing stuff down, get some advice, and then if you have the opportunity, take the plunge because you'll never know unless you try it. Okay. And then I'd say to anybody else who's also who's at an in an early stage business and who's working away uh, and trying to build out a business is the most important thing while you're running around, running your business is to keep an eye on cash flow okay. because that's that's a common problem. and uh, It's a pitfall I've, fall, I've fallen into myself because you become very enthusiastic about building out the business and all the rest of it. So you've got to make sure that your bills have been paid or that your customers are paying their bills, that your credit, that your credit management is good. And that your your cash flow cash flow management is is the thing. So that's the thing. So cash is the oxygen of your business. It yeah. doesn't really matter how good your product tastes or looks or how great your service is. Whether or not you're in business from one day to the next really just depends on what the balance in your current account is. So so I would say cash management for an exist for people in established business, especially at an early stage where everybody's running around and busy at this time of year coming up to Christmas and everything else. So watching the cash flow is important. For anyone that's thinking about starting a business, just go do it. Brilliant. I think that's the perfect note to finish on. Thank you so much, John. And that is it for this episode. Again, huge thanks to our sponsors, SSE Electricity, and of course, to you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please like and share this episode and subscribe to the Dublin Business Collective to hear more conversations with incredible business owners and entrepreneurs. My name is Moira Fay. Thanks again for joining me for the Dublin Business Collective, and I look forward to speaking to you next time. Thank you.